Imagine you gave a dollar a day to a worthy cause, but you did it along with thousands of Jewish people around the globe, and you all donated to one cause every single day. Thousands of your $1 bills pulled together towards one cause daily. What's the impact of your dollar then? You don't have to imagine it. You can and should do it by joining Daily Giving today. Head over to dailygiving.org and become a daily giver today. That's dailygiving.org. Jewish Money Matters, episode 341, An Honest Look at Honesty, part one with Rabbi Shalom Lipskar. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters, the podcast where Jewish wisdom and spirituality meet your money and your business. Money is a means to serve God in this world with joy, to build a life that leaves an imprint way beyond our time in this world. I want you to discover the secrets to Jewish wealth, to gain practical and spiritual tools to break free from the shackles of financial worry to design the joyful, rich life that your soul desires. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, and I'm so glad you're here. This is a slow-moving train crash. Right. Which means, at the beginning, it's a simple process. You uh, don't report all of your income. Mm-hmm. I'll be no big deal. The government's wasting the money anyways. They're not using it the way I'd like them to use it anyways. They're paying for stuff I don't want it to pay for. So I can rationalize what it is. They're not letting me take off my deduction for my kids' tuition. So I'm going to work it out some other way. So it happens in a very innocent fashion. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to steal. I'm going to take something from someone else. Or you invest someone else's money without thinking about the consequence of it. So it's not full disclosure. Full disclosure, transparency, honesty. These are some of the things we talk about today during part one of a two-part series on Jewish Money Matters, An Honest Look at Honesty, brought to you by Project 432, the educational arm of the Aleph Institute, preventing people from making financial mistakes, which could lead them to prison, destroying their lives and their families' lives. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, your host. Welcome to the show. With me today is Rabbi Shalom Lipsker, founder and head rabbi of the Shul of Bal Harbor. Rabbi Lipsker is also the founder of the Aleph Institute, a national Jewish education and humanitarian organization dedicated to improving the quality of life for the incarcerated. Responding to the cries of those in prison, the Aleph Institute has recently founded Project 432, turning hindsight into foresight, helping Jewish individuals like you and me achieve the highest Torah and legal standards and build lives of integrity and peace of mind. We're talking about prevention. We're talking about avoiding financial, business, and legal mistakes, going down a slippery slope that can lead to incarceration and rip apart lives. Today, we learn all about the Jewish perspective on prison. We talk about the root causes that might lead a person to commit a crime that might seem innocent and yet have life-altering consequences. We take a look at this from a macro perspective, from the perspective of parents. What could we be doing better in shaping the character and moral fiber of our children? We look at it from the perspective of spouses. What could spouses be doing better so that financial pressures don't lead one spouse down a very slippery slope? What if one of the spouses is an intuition that something in the way of the finances are being managed is not 100% kosher? We talk about that too and much more with Rabbi Lipsker. A little bit more about Rabbi Lipsker. He was appointed an emissary of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in 1969 to Miami, Florida. He has been an adjunct professor of religious studies at Florida International University. Rabbi Lipsker also served on the Miami Beach Commission of Housing in 1981. He is the chief organizer of the premier biennial International Torah and Science Conference since 1987. In 2004, he founded the Chaim Yaakov Shlomo College of Jewish Studies, offering bachelor's and master's degrees in Hebrew letters and rabbinical ordination, attracting students from across 
across the globe. Among the many more achievements lies the Aleph Institute and Project 432, as I mentioned before. This is a deep and enlightening conversation that can create a real paradigm shift about how you view your life and the lives of those around you, and thus the decisions you ultimately make. Here's the most brilliant Rabbi Shalom Lipsker. Rabbi Lesker, welcome to Jewish Money Matters. It really is an honor to have you on the show. Thank you. It's uh, I've never been on the show. I have to be admit I've not even heard the show, but I read a little bit of a praise that you sent, and it was very exciting to see. And it's a, a subject that is very close to my heart to such a degree that this year we started a five-year kolil for Chayshem Mishpat, which is for monetary reasons of a group of high-level scholars already ordained and I'm committing the next five years to study Jewish law in relationship to financial matters Amazing. so that they start living in their own business lives and their professional lives according to Jewish law, which they are much, very much looking forward to. Amazing, amazing. That this is this is beautiful. And and before we dive into the topic, um, I have to tell you that I have a tremendous uh, debt of gratitude to you. I don't know if you did hear that I I am a Balchuva of of your shul. Actually, many many years ago, I became a Balchuva in Miami, and oh, I used oh, your maiden name. Uh, my maiden name is Buxera. I was very close to Rafi and Hindi Rosenberg when they used to live uh, in Surfside. And that's where I started going to the Shul of Bal Harbor back in the day. Uh, wow. Yes. And then many years later, after I was married, I lived in Miami with my husband for two months. And my husband, we have a lot of friendships. So I have a lot of connection to your Shul and a tremendous debt of gratitude. I remember being in the women's section as a young young woman, like not really knowing how to daven yet and just taking it all, all in. So it was just bringing me back to those early days. Well, if you come back, you'd find the same kind of people right there today. Mm-hmm. I know, I know. Also, we come to visit. Also, and, and learn it's, people. Baruch Hashem, it's a beautiful community. So Rabbi, you 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 started on Shlechus in 1969. 1981, at the behest of the Lubavitch Rebbe, you start Aleph's Institute, really bringing light into the darkest of places, the prison system. This has evolved in a recent project, which we're going to talk about today, Project 432, where it's really fascinating. We're now dealing with preventative medicine because over the years, you and your team really have witnessed what has led people to make decisions that they later regret. And and sometimes things that seem like innocuous, like harmless, led to, you know, the really, really big um, life consequence for them and and their families. So tell us a little bit about Project 432, what it's trying to achieve. Well, primarily, it uh, began with a meeting that I had with Judge Jack Weinstein, who was the chief judge of the Eastern District, a noted luminary in law, professor of law at Columbia University, well-known, is really an icon among the legal community today, mm-hmm. having advanced many factors. His books on evidence are still required study for in law school, etc. We became very close friends, and he developed, helped move Aleph along together with myself, because he could open, he opened the doors that I could never open, especially being an Orthodox Hasidic Jew, looking like I do. 
uh, he was he was able to open doors of environments that really would have been closed for a long time if not for a person like himself. Mm-hmm. I visited with him to the Rebbe, and he had great respect for the Rebbe. Uh, during the time when we had the conference for Jewish men and women from prison, and he came to the Rebbe, and he told the Rebbe that he was going to share with the Sentencing Commission. The next day, he was flying to Washington. The Sentencing Commission is a commission that's been established by the government to establish criteria and standards for sentencing. Uh-huh. So that become arbitrary. Their points that are given, first offense, second offense. So people, for example, who can afford a great lawyer uh, get the same kind of treatment as people who can't afford a lawyer based on their activity and based on their personality and their background and their crime, etc. So this was more a universal kind of a program. And so he was going to the conference. He was going to Washington the next day to testify in front of the Sunday Commission. And he said to the Rebbe, I'm going to share your position on prison. And as you know, the Torah position on prison, primarily prison is the only punishment that is not mentioned in the Torah. Mm. You have financial punishments, you have corporal punishments, lashings, you have capital punishment, but you don't have prison. And the reason that you don't have prison, according to one of the legal commentators called the Minchasinus, is because it is considered possibly worse than death, suspended animation. And therefore, you have to find other means by which to punish people, by which to expiate people, which to correct people, because in Jewish law, punishment is not revenge. It's not retribution. Right. It's also correction and cleansing. The word chet means that cleansing process. And so, for example, the city of refuge, which is the closest thing to prison that we have in the Torah, you have to supply the person with food. You have to be at a crossroads. You could conduct business. You have to take his wife and kids with him. You have to take his teacher with him. Because if your person did not have an opportunity to grow spiritually, it's considered like death. Right. So that's the Torah position. However, once you do have prisons, let's try to make that time alive. Instead of people dying for 20 years, 10 years, 5 years, and looking at a calendar each day, putting an X on it, one more day left, one more day died, one more day without life, one more day without excitement, bring a level level of existence into that darkness so that they become more rehabilitated and they utilize their time. So when they come out, they're much more powerful and stronger and more capable and more resilient and more developed than they were coming in. But it's really corrections. So right. he said, Rebbe, I will share your position with the Sentencing Commission. So Rebbe said to him, my position or your position? So he says again, your position, Rebbe. So Rebbe said to him again, is it my position or your position? He finally caught on with what the Rebbe was saying. I was there, but I didn't want to interrupt the interaction. And he says, oh, it'll be my position. He says, now you can share it. He says, but to the future, the olive should concentrate. We should have to concentrate not on rehabilitation. It won't be necessary anymore, but we'll concentrate on, on preventative so that you don't have to deal with rehabilitation. Right. Rehabilitation, as you know, is so much more expensive than, than preventative and causes so much more anguish and turmoil and destruction and these shattered lives, etc., as is clear. To such a degree, there are a number of states in America, I think the state of Florida a little while ago, I'm not sure about it today, where the budget for corrections 
was bigger than the budget for education. Oh, my gosh. Imagine. And it's a misnomer because I said to the governor, I said, we should change the name. It's not corrections. They don't learn how to correct themselves in prison. They learn how to become better better criminals. They come out. Recidivism rates were astronomical. And so we try to do a, a paradigm shift of the whole process of criminal justice now to address it, now to deal with it. So that's how preventative, I mentioned the word preventative, and that's how preventative came into being. So we, uh, at that time, there was someone sentenced to, death, to uh, prison, and we were able to get an alternative sentencing. Instead of going to prison, he was going to, to sponsor a study on how to best implement preventative. And we published a book that was co-published by Art Scroll on preventative uh, methods of dealing with people who make mistakes and concentrating on it and create, trying to, now creating an entire curriculum program that goes to high schools, Kolalin, business uh, environments, and to teach them that the law of the land must be observed, that cheating on taxes is just like stealing from a shul, no less. And the laws of stealing from another human being is vast, to such a degree, I will tell you something quite surprising. Tell me. According, according to Jewish law, the liability for stealing has to have at least a value of a penny. Mm-hmm. Steal less than a penny from someone, it's not you're not you're not liable for stealing. It's considered not valuable. But if you steal a half a penny from a non-Jew, you're liable. Not because of the value, because of Phil Lashem. Right. Desecrated God's name because the guy says, See that Jew? He can't be trusted. And wow. he'd be right. So, therefore, we don't realize the extraordinary responsibility of a Jew who wears a yarmulke or a Jew who carries the name Jew, who represents Hashem. The Jew, different than any other nation, is a composite. We are not singular. When you're angry at a person who's a Catholic, Presbyterian, Baptist, Muslim, you say, I hate those Catholics. Never. It's that guy. Those Presbyterians? Never. But if a Jew does, it's those Jews. Because we are, are an organic, integrated system. We're one. It or not, yes. And it's a, it's a positive, and it also comes to bite us when we kind of break that. So the preventative side is a very important side, actually. Particularly, very. In, very, in particular environment where people kind of uh, have lackadaisical attitudes from it. Some people stupidly, foolishly, crazily, they say, you're a lot of steel from a person who's not a Jew. The people are absolutely crazy. And they, they, make, they cause such a negative attitude to the Jewish people. A Jewish person's, you know, this Torah portion, which is the last Torah portion, the portion of Bamidbar, Matus Masse, the last Torah portion, and Bamidbar ends a section of God's language, mm-hmm. the Moses' language. So there's a little bit of a difference. What is the last thing he emerges? After for 40 years, we've gone through the whole system, trained by God, trained by Moses, trained by Aaron, fed by God's food, drinking God's water, living in God's clouds, dressed by God, everything. The most controlled environment of behavioral modification that you'll ever want to see. We're at the 40-year period, waiting to get into the land. So they say, what are you going to tell these Jews at this time? So the first thing he tells them, you've got to keep your words. You've got to be trustworthy. The words are bond. 
that's a big thing you're going to tell me before I go to Israel? How about tell me to keep Shabbos? Keep kosher? Put on tefillin? No. Keep your word. word. When you go into the world, you're going to be part of a world. You have to make sure that you represent your role. You are a representative of God. That's why they don't like you. They don't like us because they don't like me. They don't like us because they don't like God. And we represent them. That's it. And God brilliantly, and only God could do that. He gave us no choice. Like I tell people, you know, people who are not so observant and want to get into, I said, let me tell you something. It's extremely hard to get into Judaism. Becoming a convert is not an easy process, but it's impossible to get out. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's you, it. Screaming, I'm not a Jew. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. <laughs> Whether you like it or not. So, so, so what, Rabbi Lipscar, what are some of the root causes that would lead a person down this path? I mean, you mentioned the word stupidity, right? Like what, what leads people to make financial decisions or rationalize financial decisions that could then lead them to face this surprise criminal investigation or sentence? What are the two most about most fallacious, most negative forces operating in society today. We have a very disturbed society today. Society that's really like a turbulent, like a ship in turbulent waters without a rudder. Mm-hmm. We were holding the rudder. What, what are the two most fundamental characteristics? There's actually one underlying factor. I'll tell you that later. Mm-hmm. The, the two practical factors are number one, instant gratification. Yes. If you're feeling good and it doesn't hurt anybody, why not? Right. What does it hurt anybody if I'm going to become a girl instead of a boy? Big right. deal. My business. What am I going to hurt anybody if I have a relationship outside of my uh, my commitment? Big deal, you know, so they'll get used to it and so forth. I need it for myself, for my fulfillment. I don't feel fulfilled. I don't feel good. This way I feel good. So what do you think? God's going to care if I have a little bit of a, a cheeseburger? Big deal. Think, as long as I feel good about it, and I'm going to make a blessing. I'm going to say, God, thank you for the food. But it makes me feel good. Instant gratification. Mm-hmm. One. I don't mean number one in terms of primacy. It's one of the two. And second is entitlement. Mm. We all feel entitled. We all feel like you owe it to me. Right. Kids feel like daddy, you owe it to me. It works like the father comes and works a whole day. The mother is cooking and cleaning it. You come home and it doesn't, something's not the way you like it. I'm not eating tonight. Why'd you make this supper twice in a row? Or I'm going out. Yeah, I, I want to go. You can't. Yes, I can. I need a new pair of sneakers, but you got four pairs in the closet. Mm-hmm. My friends have a fifth pair. It's called entitlement. Entitlement. Right. Those are two practical causes. The underlying factor is, as you take a look at the downward spiral of society today, is a trend. It began in the 60s when they took God out of the room classroom. They took God out of the courthouse. They took command, the Ten Commandments out. They took God out of everything, if you notice. Separation of church and state, take God, dug up. But there's one place they didn't take God out of. You know what that was? What? The dollar bill. Mm-hmm. God we trust. God we trust. And nobody bothers anybody. Nobody says, take it off the dollar bill. You know why? 
They'll, they'll mess with the kids. They'll mess with society. But they're not going to mess with money. Mm-hmm. See, money, we got to hedge the bets. So you take a look at it. It's, a, it's a, an un- We operate without consciousness. We operate basically by default. Mm-hmm. Our nature has driven us. Nature is a very powerful force. Right. Nurture is as powerful as nature. So how we conduct ourselves and how we acclimate ourselves is basically how we are. So that's what happens. Instant gratification. My friend's got this fancy car, and it's very easy. So, you know, he tells me it's very easy. I've got a couple of credit cards here and there, big deal. You know, this guy's got so much money, so he won't miss this $50,000 that, that I'm going to take from him or twenty five. You know, you start making judgments for other people. Why should he have all this money? And take a look. He's not even such a nice guy, and I have nothing, and I'm such a nice guy. So it's okay to take away some of his cash, especially if I can get away with it. It's all rational. You know, most of the time, you don't even rationalize for it. You don't think. Right. Just, we don't even yeah, think it through. Yeah, you just sound the end result. We, 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 are, we, are, we, are, we are not a conscious living. How many people think about their relationship with their soul every day? I have a question I ask a lot of people on a regular basis. How's your soul? And, well, a lot of people. Most people I know have I've asked that question. The first time I asked that question, they looked at me and said, what would you say? I said, I just soul. Oh, soul, soul food, soul music. Soul. <laughs> I said, you know, that energy inside of you that keeps you alive. I don't know. I don't, what do you mean? I don't know. They don't even understand. They don't even know there's a soul. Right. Which is the fundamental position of the progressives, that there is no soul. They don't believe in the soul. They believe that the, the human being is an animal body with AI attached to our shoulders. <laughs> Fortunate reality. Take a look at the, read their philosophers. I've unfortunately it's 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 interesting, and you brought it to this point of of nurture being just as as strong as uh, as nature as. You know, a lot of the people that you've encountered over the years, they weren't necessarily born criminals, right? And, and, and is there, but there might be the things that you just talked about. And then there might be also like behaviors that, you know, kind of seeped in during childhood and you just kind of get used to them. So what are some of the things that as parents, we should be kind of um, sensitive to that sometimes, you know, you know, I, I always hear like stories like, Oh, just just say that you're 11 so that they don't charge you more. You know, little things like that that seem so innocent, but they are not. They really can shape a child and kind of like shape that mindset towards one that's more receptive to, you know, cutting corners. Yeah, it's a very good observation you're making. I'm, let me give you a very simple response to that from a different point of view. Psychologists today, not even Jewish, uh, modern psychologists like uh, books written uh, by Yale professors, uh, the ordeal of civility, common concepts, people who study children, and they talk about disbelief, non-belief, is a learned experience. Mm. Belief is a natural experience. Belief is not a learned experience. All children believe. Wow. Wow. You ask a child, little child in preschool, walk into our preschool, or say, uh, where's God? I say, he's here, he's there, he's everywhere, he's up there. How much do you love God? I love him so much. You know, as an adult, an adult never say, I love him so much because who's God? Where was he doing the Holocaust? Uh, how come he didn't answer my, my prayer when I asked him for, uh, to make, to close my deal? 
to make my stock stay up. How he wasn't there. The kid doesn't understand it. He definitely understands. Yes, there is a God who created me. You know what? Because he's closest to his origin. He just came there. Right, right. He's closest his, to his soul. His soul yeah. is much has more predominant. Exactly. So that's where he is. So what? How do you get the non non-belief? It's a learned experience. A kid grows up, and every child grows up with a selfish streak. It's a necessary streak. It's survival. Right. He's born. He cries at night. Do you think he cares about you, the mother? Nothing. He needs to get fed. <laughs> he can wake you up 40 times a night. He wouldn't even blink. And all he wants is a bottle. He's screaming and yelling, and you do a whole day you couldn't get. You can't even lift your head off the pillow. And you tell your husband, can you go? And the guy says, well, I just fell asleep. And this kid's yelling. Somebody's getting up for him. And you get up, and you hold him, and you kiss him, and you love him. And you say, yes, honey. Here's your Bible. You don't say, next time, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. <laughs> so the kid gets what he wants. As he continues to grow, he gets what he wants. Hold me, play with me, give me, buy me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He becomes five, six, seven, eight years old. And the kid's told, there's certain things you can't do. What do they can't do? Why can't I do it? Because Hashem says so. Oh, Hashem says so. Very nice. So he gets a little bit older. And he wants to do it, but he knows Hashem said, no, don't do it. So he doesn't do it. Then he says this. I find out, who's this Hashem that says so? I says, well, it's written in the Torah that says so. And the kid learns a little bit. And he starts learning about Shabbos, about kosher. And then he says to his dad, dad, how come you don't listen to what Hashem says? Mm-hmm. So the kid, the dad says, come on, when you get older, you'll understand. So the kid says, well, I got a choice, maybe. So he doesn't believe what Hashem says, so he doesn't keep Shabbos. He doesn't believe what Hashem says, so he doesn't learn Torah. He doesn't believe what Hashem says, so he doesn't treat my mom, or my mom doesn't treat him right. He doesn't like Hashem says, he never seen him kiss the mezuzah, or he never seen him pray. So I don't want Hashem either in my life, and I'll do it when I want to do something. So at night, I want to look at my phone when Shabbos. Uh, that's, I like Hashem, yeah, but I'll talk about Hashem. But this thing, let him go, so you learn in order to answer your selfish, animal, instinctive needs, you rationalize for getting out of your life. And slowly, he gets completely out of your life. Because once you compromise, there's no limit to the compromise. Right. No red line anymore. And you end up, you can marry a non-Jew, you go out there, do whatever you want. That's what's happening out there. What do you think our kids? They're beautiful kids. We have found, coming back to the business situation, that almost 90% of people who are incarcerated, particularly for violent crimes, particularly, and even for nonviolent crimes, have a history of some level of abuse. Hmm. They don't grow up in loving spaces. They don't grow up in non-judgmental spaces. They grow up in spaces where they have no sense of self-esteem. Their self-esteem is who they make themselves to be. Their power, their ego, their strength, their money, their ability... And so at some point, they throw it all stops in order to achieve exactly what they want. Right. That's in a, in a very short way. That's what happens. So belief is not something you learn. It's disbelief is something mm-hmm. that you learn.
Hey, do you know what's my favorite email of the day? The one I receive from Daily Giving every morning. I get to see a new updated donation amount and the organization receiving the donation that day. True, I may have only contributed $1, but the impact of my dollar when pooled with that of thousands of daily givers is massive. I love knowing that every single day I'm giving. No matter how busy my life gets, I know every day I'm fulfilling the mitzvah of tzedakah because I signed up to daily giving, and so should you. Don't wait. Head over to dailygiving.org and become a daily giver today. Incredible. What a powerful answer. And I never even thought about it that way. That is, that is incredible. And it's so absolutely true. Now, going back to, you know, the business piece, the financial piece, there's part of this, I suspect, you know, if you're, let's say people are most, you know, people are married. Um, you've, you've met a lot of people who have families and, you know, they end up in prison for something that, Again, they didn't think it was going to go sour. You know, they, they thought somebody told them it was a deal. I don't know what the situations are, but they, they end up, it doesn't end up well. How often do you see that there's maybe something that's underlying in the way a couple maybe communicates around money and making a livelihood and, and, and how can perhaps better, more open communication help people? Um, you know, not go down this path? Well, two things. Number one, this is a slow-moving train crash. Right. Which means at the beginning, it's a simple process. You uh, don't report all of your income. Mm -hmm. No big deal. The government's wasting the money anyways. They're not using it the way I'd like them to use it anyways. They're paying for stuff I don't want it to pay for. So I can rationalize what it is. They're not letting me take off my deduction for my kids' tuition. So I'm going to work it out some other way. So it happens in a very innocent fashion. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to steal, I'm going to take something from someone else. Or you invest someone else's money without thinking about the consequence of it. So it's not full disclosure. But you do that to yourself as well. Why? It says, love your fellow man as you love yourself. You can't love somebody else more than you love yourself. So people who themselves, they lost their money because they make foolish investments and they, and they gamble their money. Gambling is not necessarily in a in a uh, club, in a gambling casino in Las Vegas. Gambling can be on the stock market as well. Some of these day traders are gamblers. And they know it's going to go up and they put their whole money in their whole house and everything on there and they lose everything. So a person who does not have that sense of discipline in their own financial matters, that'll extend over to other people as well. So they lose their money. I didn't only lose their money, I lost my money too. But their money you have no rights to lose over. So it Many times, guys who are in prison today should not be in prison. That's not a way to deal with these people. I don't agree with that. Prison is just a devastating consequence because it's a default punishment in America today that needs to be radically changed. You know, everything has changed. Medicine has changed. Science has changed. Technology has changed. Prisons are not changed. You still throw people into, lock them up and spend money just caring, caring for their food and drink and how they, how, how, how they, sustain themselves, and then uh, causing the collateral damage of prisons is vast. Right. Most children of people that have gone to prison are affected. In the same way as most children of Holocaust survivors are affected, people who have gone to prison are affected. There, there's a certain factor 
that I've talked about it to judges, and it's something that needs to be taken up in Jewish life. It's a very important factor. But in the secular world, they don't take it so seriously. It's called shame. Mm-hmm. Jewish life, there's five elements that you take into consideration when there's damages. The physical damage, medical attention, the time that you're out of work, there's a tsar pain, how much pain you suffered, and then shame, how much shame there is. Shame is a very devastating, devastating feeling. It's so devastating. I'll give you another interesting Talmudic discussion. You know, according to certain circumstances, if a person like a wayward woman, a woman who's committed adultery and has not accepted responsibility and she goes through the whole process, the consequence for adultery is stoning. The both the perpetrator, the man, and the women are stoned, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It never happened in history. Uh, you know, sometimes these punishments are told, but they never happen because they, there's so many qualifications in order to right. get to it right. that it wouldn't ever qualify for it. But then the Talmud asks the question, in order to stone the person, the stoning process, I know it's a little gory to talk about that on a podcast, but it's a Talmudic discussion. They would throw the person off a two-story building. And so he basically, most of the time, would just die from the impact of the fall. But if not, there was a person there with a rock who was an expert. And they would then drop the rock exactly on his heart. With with such force, they would immediately stop the heart. So there would be the least pain. Because even when you have to inflict pain, you have to find... Way, the inflict death, you have to wa- find a way to minimize the pain. So now the question is, so when you throw, do you use that? The guy does not wear the shirt, because if he's wearing a shirt, it might prove to be a buffer between the rock and the heart, and therefore it might hurt him more. So for a man, you take off his shirt. So the question is, how about for a woman? So the Talmud says, for a woman, you know, there's these young guys that might be hanging around and they're training and they will see a woman with a shirt off and they will not treat her properly or not relate to her with respect and she'll be embarrassed and you'll find even the Nazis as they undress the people and they shot them, the men would walk without their clothes on but the women would always try to cover themselves because that's a natural instinct of a person the modesty died. It's very critical to the person. So the Talmud says you bury her, you do with a shirt, without a shirt. So the Talmud asks the question, what's worse, pain or shame? Hmm. Persons suffer more shame in order to eliminate more pain, so then you take off the shirt? Or would a person suffer more pain, but not to be embarrassed, so you keep on the shirt? I know what the answer of the Talmud is. When Mashiach comes, we'll know the answer. Oh. That's what it says, Deku. Wow. And we can't give you an answer. It's such a delicate question. Right. Shame is a very powerful motivator. And you imagine when a person goes to prison who's outstanding in community, it's been a parent, and suddenly, boom, their whole life is torn up in front of them. The trauma, the impact is so extraordinary. We can't even imagine it. I've right. seen it. It's heart-wrenching. 
destroys families, it destroys the kids' lives. And sometimes people might think, oh, in a year, you know, or three years when I get out of here, I'll rebuild my business and it'll be fine. But it's not like that. I have seen, you should never see it. God forbid. I've seen in a, in a court, in a courtroom where a man was sentenced to 10 years in prison. His wife and children were there. His wife starts to wail like a, like a hurt, like a, it's like a, an animal that's hurt. Just wail. And the father says to the marshals as they take him out with handcuffs, can I just say goodbye to my child? I want to give him something. He's wearing a watch. He take off the watch. He says, I just want to give this to my son. And he comes to him over to the table and bring him over. And the son says, screaming, I don't want the watch. Don't want the watch. He's screaming. You know, I took the watch from the man because he wouldn't take, they didn't take it inside. And I gave it to the mother later. He says, the last time, the last, he said, my dad told me that that watch he got before, after his father died, before his father died, he said, I want you to have my watch. He says, I don't want to have watch. I don't want to have watch. And the kid, you couldn't even keep him quiet. You had to take him out of the courtroom. You can't imagine. But besides the fact that people who commit violent crimes are always a, a result, a product of a traumatic youth experience of their youth, the event itself is extremely traumatizing, extremely painful, hurtful. That's why sometimes the work that Olive does, not only in 432, but in, in to being pastoring to these people in terms of chaplaincy, bringing them to Philly, talking to them, learning with them. Like Mm -hmm. right now, the next two days, today and tomorrow, we have a yeshiva in prison program. Mm. We bring 10 rabbis and they come into a prison and they learn Chavrusa with 20 Jews for two days, from 8.30 in the morning till 3.30 in the afternoon. Amazing. These are transformative days in their lives. Of course. Literally. So all of that fits generally into that pattern. And I, I want to go back now that you painted the picture of this family. I want to go back to the scenario of husband and wife and financial situations. Again, I keep going back to thinking like sometimes in marriage, money is such a taboo and it's such a source of pressure. And perhaps let's say the man is the breadwinner and the woman is kind of not clued into what is going on and he feels tremendous financial pressures and she doesn't know it and he might just again go and make decisions that are detrimental not just to him but again to to the entire family eventually all because there's been this lack of communication and transparency between them about what really is the financial situation and how could we work together to ease the pressure right so 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 again is there something there that could be functioning better within couples? Definitely, but it starts at marriage. It doesn't start with the moment you have a problem. Right, right. And you've already established a, a relationship. So in the case in a relationship where the man has been the breadwinner and the mother, all she does, thank God, every day, she goes out, she has lunch with her friends, she shops, she does a good thing, she never worries about the credit card and so forth. And the guy says, How, why don't I tell my wife all of a sudden? She's going to divorce me. I mean, all of a sudden, I can't, totally can't use the credit card anymore. 
You right. can't get lunch anymore in these fancy restaurants. You know, we're going to have to downgrade and, and get you a, a, a less expensive lease. Car, on right. Or whatever. And, and the guy doesn't even know how to say it. He's afraid, literally. Because for the first 15, 20 years of his life, it's been a spoiled life, literally. They never it's, talked about these things, right? And, and most most families, unfortunately, they talk where we're going to have vacation, what we're going to mm-hmm. do. There's not that no substantive conversation right. about meaning of life. It doesn't happen because that's not the jargon that they're used to in a societal environment. Right. Today, first of all, most people, most of us are ADD. We, we look at our phones and, <laughs> and it's, it's, uh, we create our own ADD. Kids today, they, they can look at their phone for five hours in a row and not budge from their phones. And they're watching 50 things at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it, I just was watching a kid was looking at something. What are you looking at? Oh, I was, I'm looking at something else now. But what did you look at before that? It doesn't matter. It, it, the speed, you know, today, even if, in watching uh, sports games, I've been to homes where they have like uh, made, uh, four screens going on together. So during football season or whatever, they're into football or basketball, whatever, they have four games going on together. And they're watching all four games. That in itself is ADD. How do you concentrate on four things together? And they, they're into every aspect. And in the middle of the four games, they're also getting, uh, having a, a Coke or having some pizza and having a conversation and listening to a joke. So the concentration also has suffered tremendously. Our educational system needs an overhaul. You know, you start yeah. talking about change and you go to get to the prison. Sometimes the best reflection of a society is in the slowest environment. You know, the building, the strength of the building is not the way the roof looks, it's the way the foundation looks. Foundation, right. And we, that you never see. It's way deep under the ground. You never deal with the foundational elements. So we're, we're very, a, very, a very external society, living by very external reasons. Why don't we like somebody? Like somebody because how they look, how they dress, what they, how they speak. So external. There's mm-hmm. nothing character with what they can offer society it's i just don't like him you know i don't like that guy i don't like this lady what don't you like about her i don't know just the way she is you got why don't you like about it i mean what what does that have to do with anything we are so so externalized that's our society yeah yeah On this level you know you have people i'm sure people watch uh different uh, uh television or even on the on their internet staff advertisement. Do you ever see a car advertisement? I don't care which car it is. It can be a, a Toyota, it can be a Rolls Royce, it can be a Maserati. They never tell you how many miles you get to the gallon, what kind of engine you have, how good the tires are, what the age of the car, how long the car will last. They get you some pretty model sitting in the car driving up a mountain, which has nothing to do with the car. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's creating the picture in your head that makes it white, like real estate. Yeah. You know, the big thing real estate is not value, how many, how much it's cost to run this place. You know, smart businessmen, they get down to the bottom talks, but right away, I like it. That, I'm buying the house. I don't care. That's Pictures. It. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. It. Yeah. So, so we go back to what we were saying earlier on, like if we can, if we make the soul, if we realize that the soul is our primary identity, 
this really changes the whole the whole dynamic, even within a marriage, right? If yes. I'm a soul put together by God with another soul, then we're here to win it together. And so anything that 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 God blesses us with is just another tool to advance our mission in the world. So of course, we're going to talk about it. Of course, it doesn't feel threatening. Um, you, you know, um, so, so, so you're really touching on a very important point. And it's really by divine providence that we're in the three weeks talking about the essence of it, which is really that unifying element that we have, the soul. Um, so it's, it's really, I'm, I'm really very impressed that we're having this conversation right at this time, but let's go back to, what happens, Rabbi, if sometimes there's an intuition, right? Sometimes there's a spouse who might think, you know, I, I don't know, like, I feel maybe what my husband's getting involved in, you know, maybe that's just not so kosher. Maybe there's a gray area, but they're getting dismissed. Like, ah, oh, you don't understand anything about taxes, or I checked with the accountant. You don't know anything about my business, or you just need to trust me more, you know, but they have a feeling, um, what is the spouse's role in that case? What would you advise that partner who has a strong intuition that something might be off, but they're being told, nah, you're just crazy? So two things. I'm going to go back to what you just mentioned a minute ago for a second about the soul, the primacy of the soul, and the, the fact that that's the critical factor. It's more than that also. We have to realize that every single part of our body is a tool. Mm-hmm. Body is not an end in itself. The body is only a means to an end. So, for example, my hands. I need my hands to write, to eat, to do. If I didn't need to, if someone feed me all the time and I didn't have to write to do anything, my hands would have a zero function. Every part of my body is the same way. The whole body is a tool. It's a tool through which the soul operates. The difference between the body and the soul is the body is selfish. Animal. What makes me feel good, what I like, what I do what I can identify with. The soul is selfless. My connection with holiness, my connection with God. The body is temporary. The soul is eternal. It's a whole different conception. So we generally, it's a person like, make sure that his shirt is clean every day, puts on the nicest clothes, the best suit, the nicest dress, and never takes a shower. That's that's like the soul and the body. Similar. Mm-hmm. So that's from that perspective. Once a person comes to that realization, through consciousness alone, you have to have consciousness for that. It doesn't come naturally because it says that awareness of the soul only comes when you're 13 years old. Right. Until you're 13, you're not aware. So the, the Gemara says, uses the word say, which is the animal instinct has a primary claim on the body because right. you have to eat when you're born, but you don't think when you're born. And that's to learn it. You have to discipline yourself to, to learn olive base. You don't have to discipline yourself to play mm-hmm. or to eat or to things like that. So there's a certain advantage that the body has already by integrating its nature into the human prior to the soul even having a say in the matter. Right. The soul say in the matter is the discipline that you're applying to it. Only later does it come to flower out and to have a certain meaningfulness. Once you understand that, your relationship with the husband and wife becomes different. A wife, in most cases, unfortunately, a husband is a supplier, and, so, and, and not only a supplier of money, supplier of life, a supplier of children, supplier of company, of all of that. And a, a woman, it's the same thing to a man. You know, she answers his needs primarily in terms of keeping a home, a beautiful person, some of the answers, also has, has having his children fulfilling certain aspects of his needs. 
the truth is that they're not there to support the other person. They are there as partners. Supporters and partners are two different things. A partner means you share in everything equally. Sharing everything equally, your wife's or husband's intuition becomes meaningful. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you can have a flaky husband or a flaky wife, you know, every little thing. You know, uh, uh, today I, I, I can't jump on the roof. Please don't go out of the house today. You know, you can have people like that as well. But I'm talking about people who are just normal, general, intelligent human beings who think about life, raising the children well. Their intuition should be something that you should take into consideration. Right. And right. when a person has an intuition, I always tell husbands and wives as well, talk about it. Why do you feel that way? What is it about it? So I said, well, you know, most of the stuff you're talking about, you never talk, want to talk about it publicly. Every time I walk into the room, you start whispering about it. I don't think I trust you. But this is something that you're just maybe not so comfortable with. Because if I'm not comfortable with it, maybe you're not comfortable with it. You just have to talk it out. Communication is a critical factor. And that begins also prior to marriage. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so important when people get ready for marriage to make sure not to enter into physical relationship. Because then you have no more communication. Then the animal took over. Finished. You're finished already. There's no intelligence, no analysis, no thinking, no patterns. You know, that's it. I'm in love. I can I can. And usually those relationships have a lot of challenges as you go into life because you never dealt with any fundamental aspects of life. You see someone in a, in a restaurant, hey, can you introduce that guy? He looks really good. So he looks really good, you know. Find out who he is. That's why in Jewish life, the safest way of meeting somebody is to a shotgun. Mm-hmm. Not because it's old-fashioned. Because it just makes sense to say, and say, well, yeah, well, I, I, I want to buy that business. You don't know how, how the business operates. You don't know how much profit there is. And overhead there is. You have nothing. I just like the way the storage works. It's got nice chandeliers. <laughs> right. Things like that. So right. the thing that you're talking about is holistic. Mm-hmm. Anything from each other. The key factor is having a Shem in your life. A conscious way. So then in the morning, when you say, Maidani, it's Maidani. And a very interesting question. You know why you say, you know, in Hebrew, you speak Hebrew, right? A little bit, yeah. Enough. Is that Hebrew, right? Mm-hmm. Grammatic. You know what Maidani means? I thank you, right? Mm-hmm. Thank you. So the right way in Hebrew, but not Maidani, but Ani Maidani. Right. I thank you. Not modani thank I you. It's the opposite of the structure. So why are we stuck with modani? It's got to be a good reason for that. Every there's no sitter that says ani modet. Everybody's modani. Why? Because the establisher of the prayer said, when you open your eyes, the first thing that comes out of your mouth should not be I, it should be thanks. So the first thing is not I thank, but thank I. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Gratitude is number one. Number one. Yeah. And it goes back to those two things that you said, you know, instant when you told us instant gratification and entitlement are all about the I. How can I, I get more, right? And, and can satisfy my own needs. It leaves God who, out of the picture. And who's the I? 
What was the eye usually? The eye is not your really essence being, like you really know you are. The eye is something you create in your own mind. That's the way you like to be. You make your hair a certain style, face a certain style, dress a certain style. So you fit into a pattern of how you want to create the eye, but not the real eye. The real eye is a whole different person. Right, 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 right. So, so everything takes on a much deeper consciousness if you approach life in a different way. But again, it's a training process. It happens from the time that they ask, from when do, you, when, when do you have to start educating a child? Someone asked the rabbi. As he said, when the mother's born. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's it. It's a real thought process. You're, you're onto a subject where you're talking about the end result of many years of distortion. So you have to reconstruct the whole process. However, practically, it takes too long to reconstruct it internally and to reset your mindset, etc. So that's why we have, that's why Rabbi Kiva says, what's the main law of the Torah? We have to Rosh Kamal. A Hillel, who loved every Jew, he doesn't say we have to Rosh Kamal, which he could have. Mm-hmm. When he say, what's the whole Torah? Standing on one foot. He says, what is hateful unto you, do not do unto your friend. All those is commentary, go study. Why didn't he say, love your fellow man as yourself, like it says in the Torah? Like Akiva said. Because it's not so easy to love someone. But you can always have the discipline not to do somebody wrong. Right. Even if you can't get to the level where you get it in the head, we have enough disciplines to be able to follow a way of life that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And it will not distort our future or cause us the horrible collateral consequences that mistakes make for everybody around us. So Rabbi, short of listening to this beautiful conversation today um, and, and, and being in touch with, you know, the, the, the beautiful educational programs at, at, Pro, at Project 432, um, what are some other preventative measures? What, what could we, doing, we be doing better as Jews on a, I would say, consistent basis so that we become more sensitive to godliness and, and, and catch ourselves before, God forbid, anybody walks down this slippery slope? Um, does it start with Torah learning? Does it start with Sharbi Tachon? What are some ideas? I'll tell you two things. Mm-hmm. Number one, every single man should spend, I would say, a maximum at this point if you're starting. A five minutes a day learning with your wife in front of your kids. Yes. I've said it so many times on the show. Thank you. <laughs> There's books for one thought every day, no matter five what. Five minutes a day. Learn with your spouse. Max, which means three minutes is good. Six is no good. You're not going to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. You got to keep it real simple. And even if you're traveling on the phone, no no day should go without it. And even if you're not talking to each other for some reason, you know, the guy, he, he, he threw his, his underwear on, uh, off the bed every day for six weeks. And I, I told him, pick it up and he doesn't want to. Yeah, I'm not talking to you until you do it. It comes at five minutes. It's, it's an oasis. Mm-hmm. Never miss. That's number one. Number two, every parent needs to spend 15 minutes at least a day with each child individually, personally. Wow. Talking to that child. No phones. Uh, individually. <laughs> whether it's... Not, uh, not, not looking at this while you're with the child. Not even in your presence. Mm-hmm. 
whether it's how was your day, tell me a story, you want to hear a story, let me tell you what happened to me today, how are you feeling, are you, is something happy, and don't judge, whatever the child says, don't judge, support, that's a, that's the 50 minutes of support, not judgment, not criticism, that you should have done this better, do this better, that's a different thing. 15 minutes, they look forward to those 15 minutes, it becomes the most 15 minutes that will make the biggest impact on their lives. Mm-hmm. Just two ideas. I, yeah, I, I love them. Again, I don't want to get into more stuff because kind of keep it, you know, just keep it simple, stupid. Yeah, keep it exactly. Keep it simple so that it actually happens. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. It's so, doable. So, hmm? It's doable. Doable. Right. Right. And the right. results are in. The results are in. It works. It, it does work. I, I, I believe it. I believe it. Uh, Rabbi, you had a, a close relationship. We were privileged enough to have a very close relationship with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Um, w- perhaps you can tell listeners a little bit about what are some of the lessons about making a livelihood, about our, about money, the way we relate to money and to work that stand out in your mind as being the hallmark of the Rebbe, there was a unique approach to the Rebbe in that regard that you perhaps can help listeners give them clarity, some strength, some confidence as they engage with this resource where people feel tremendous amount of, of, of pressure, et cetera, so that they can relate to it in a more health, in a healthier, more positive way. So, uh, first of all, I have to just qualify something. Nobody had a really close relationship, but as a close relationship, it was consistent. He answered all my questions. He directed my life. I met with him personally many times. Like in my lifetime, I met with him personally more than 30 times. So, and I went to so many of his talks for, to, during my schooling years, nine years. I went to every single Shabbos, every spring, and I, I never missed, etc. So, you know, that's for most people that we called close, but the rather, he was a different, a different level. You know, it was not that level. However, when it came to my financial matters, there are certain things the Rebbe was clear about. Number one, never gamble. Stock market, according to the Rebbe, was a gamble unless you invest in a good company and keep it. Not a day trader. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know what's up or going on. No, that's where it was very much against that kind of attitude. Gamble. Number two, the Rebbe was extremely careful in never, never, shortchanging your obligation to anybody, particularly to the government. We have to be thankful to a government that gives us opportunities. And Dina de Malfusa, Dina, the law of the land is law. Under any circumstance, he, he insisted that every Lubavitch organization have a complete audit by an accountant that he wanted to see the audit of the accountant. And we have to send it in to him because he didn't want no monkey. Don't tell, not a friend of yours should give you your books and he'll write it the way you want it. I want somebody, something solid. But I was very, very careful about that. Number three, I'm not saying this in the level of importance, but all are significantly important. Talking the direction of the Rebbe. Number three, to really believe in your heart, not to have faith in God, but to trust God. Right. Faith and trust are two different things. A thief, the Gemara says a thief, when he's about to break into a house, he says, God, please make sure I don't get caught. He has faith. He doesn't get caught. But how do you tell God to help you break into a house? 
because it's so external. It's not internalized. Trust means you put your life in his hands. And you have to trust in Hashem. Trust in Hashem means that when he makes sure that you have a living, he wants you to do it honestly, decently, without hurting anybody, without wrongful competition. It was very careful about Asaga's rule, not to compete in a, wrong, a way that was against the Torah, not to charge ways that were beyond the Torah's allowances in terms of interest and other such factors. Very careful that every single way that the Torah directs us to conduct ourselves monetarily are critical for our success in our lives. And if I would say often, and it was publicized, and there was public things that I would say often, and even someone who makes a lot of money, it's not how much you make, it's how you spend it. Mm-hmm. So you can make a lot of money and then spend it, unfortunately, on doctor's bills. Right, right. Send it on other issues. Or you can make a little bit of money and have the happiest life in the world. And that you owe no, nothing to anybody. And you're fine with your family. And you are happy that Aza, who who is one who's rich, Aza Oshik, is happy with what God gives him. Mm-hmm. God knows better than me what I need. Every morning before prayer, we say two things. We think two things. It's called general meditation before prayer. One is the greatness of God and the loneliness and the limitations of man. And the fact that we have this direct contact with the big boy, with the big boss, the man who controls the whole system. Direct contact. He's listening to me. I have access to him on a daily basis. Number one. And number two, God can and does answer each person according to his needs, not according to his wants. His needs, because sometimes I had an, I had an occasion at something. The Rebbe, I asked the Rebbe a question in my life, a very, very important question. It was a life-changing question. And the Rebbe answered me, I do not take away any free choice from anybody, but I would prefer that you do one, one of those two things that fast. So I immediately answered him. But I even questioned, I, I, I called the secretary back right away and I said, tell the Rebbe he took away my choice. Because if he said he wants it, you know, what am I going to say, Rebbe, I don't care what you want, I'm going to do my right. thing. I said, tell the Rebbe he took away my choice. What the Rebbe said to me, take him. And in a public address, he said one time, he said, sometimes if you're fortunate, your choices will be taken away from you because you're making them on a wrong basis. Mm. So when it comes to serious times in life, I'd say, I say, always have someone out there that's objective that you can discuss things with, that you can trust. Make important decisions in life. Don't do it on your own because you're too biased. You're biased, right. And you're too unclear about where you're at. Mm-hmm. So Beautiful. God bless you. Beautiful. And hopefully during the time, the nine days, when we have to get rid of the baseless hatred, we will replace it with unconditional love. Unconditional love. We focus on the soul of each individual. We'll be able to love everybody. And on a soul level, we're all equal because exactly. we have one father. And we come from one source. Exactly. We're an organic. We are an organic system. Exactly. Rabbi Lipskar, thank you so much. Continue that slacha in this beautiful project and in everything that you do. Thank you so much. God bless you.
Thanks to Rabbi Lipsker for stopping by. You can find Project 432 at p432.org. Next week, I will continue this conversation in part two of the series with the director of Project 432, Rabbi Levi Landa, after which we hope that you will have learned about a sensitive but really important topic and gained a clearer picture of what financial crime looks like, the individuals, the causes, the preventative measures we could all be taking, and much more. Thanks again for being here. I know you have so many things that you could be doing, uh, so many ways you could be spending your time, and you've chosen to come here to Jewish Money Matters. And for that, I'm truly grateful, and I invite you to send me your questions, your comments, your concern. I try my best to address everyone on my Friday's Ask Yael episode. And this week, please, God, is no exception. Not too late to send those in. You can email me, yael at yaeltrush.com, or you can DM me on Instagram and LinkedIn at yaeltrush. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.